Thanks for listening to the AI and IT Ops podcast brought to you by New Relic. This is episode three, the full interview. For all things application performance management, AI ops, digital transformation, and more, check out www.apmdigest.com. Our guest today is cloud computing pioneer Mike Cavis, managing director at Deloitte Consulting. And now, your host of the podcast, industry veteran, consultant, and analyst, Andy Thurai. Welcome to the AI and IT ops podcast. I am Andy Thurai, founder and principal at thefieldcto.com home of unbiased emerging technology advisory services. So I always enjoyed my conversations with my friend and a podcast legend, Mike Cavis from Deloitte. I've known Mike for a while, and he shares some really good points on IT operations, AI, and in general. I always loved his unfiltered opinions on any topic, whether it's IT or not. So I thought I'll invite him to share some of that with our audience. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, nice talking to you again. Uh, I don't know about the legend stuff, but I've been around the block for a while, so we'll leave it at that. Come on. You've been running your podcast close to 10 years now? Been a while, yep. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to be on this side of it. Right, right. <laughs> so one thing I've been meaning to ask, particularly with the practitioners and the folks who have been advising large enterprises, which you have been in the thick of things with the Deloitte there. How widespread do you think the air ops adoption in the enterprise? Are they thinking about it? Or are they doing it? Or are they strategizing it? Where does it stand? Are they starting, stopping, in between? It really depends on what their definition of AI ops is. You know, this is like everything else, right? Yeah, we're doing this, we're doing that. But if you really look at the definition of what AI ops is, they're probably not. Some of them are leveraging, I'll put air quotes around AI ops capabilities in their existing tool sets. But there are a few people who really understand what AI ops is and are changing the way they're thinking about operations and moving forward. But I would say that's a small percentage. I can't really put a number on it. But if you think about things like IoT and stuff like that, it's probably relative to how many companies are mature in IoT versus not. It's probably a similar number for AI ops. You know, there's people dabbling, there's people who have vendor solutions that claim AI ops, but there's very few who are really taking kind of an augmented approach, using intelligence to replace a lot of manual intervention and stuff like that. Very, very few. That doesn't mean there's very few organizations. It mainly means it's very few applications or services within in an organization that's embracing that. Now that you split the word, they're saying it depends on your definition of what is is or what AI ops is. Let me ask you, based on your experience, what do you think is a true definition of AI ops? Well, I walked into that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hate definitions, but I'll just talk conceptually. But it's basically leveraging artificial intelligence or even machine learning to, instead of reacting to operational things like, is my system running? Do I have enough compute? And those types of things to the system learning from past behaviors, past metrics, past log files and saying, hey, we think this is trending poorly and you should look at this. Or even further, totally augmented where it's like, hey, we detected this trend, we're going to fix something here and do this for you. So it's really, instead of the old method of looking at a wall and seeing red, yellow, green, it's being proactive and heading off issues 
before they become visible to the client. Now, there's a lot of tools that do that proactively. Intelligence right. is, is like detecting the unknowns, right? Kind of like fraud detection type thing. All of a sudden we see this erratic behavior over here we've never seen before, right? And it's using, and then over time we learn that these types of trends usually equal a fraudulent activity. It's more of those types of things, but then it can get even more sophisticated where it can be totally autonomous. It can totally self-heal and no one even needs to get involved. Now, there's obviously use cases where that makes sense and use cases where it doesn't. So I don't know if that's a definition, but you just need to be clear. It's a step beyond proactive because we've had proactive monitoring for a very long time. Right. When you have a normal situation, everything outside the normal is an anomaly. So the rules-based engines will kick that off if you don't have real intelligence built in. So somebody was mentioning to me just, you know, last few weeks ago, now with working from home concept, remote working, everything is an anomaly. All our rule-based systems are going nuts, Right. So the, the intelligence system shouldn't be based on anomaly detection. It should be more about identify a real problem, use some intelligence. It should get to that level. Yeah, now that you mention that, I wonder how many systems start 90% of your staff's not remote, and then the next day it's all remote. I wonder if there were some security solutions that were thinking they were going to denial a service attack or something, because all of a sudden they're seeing all this outside activity going towards the same set of resources. That, that's interesting. Yeah, not only security, but even the, the monitoring guys. Remember the operations guys, ops guys were supposed to be at knock and sock centers all the time. The work from home concept actually exposed the haves and have-nots of the DevOps versus ops guys. The DevOps guys were set up for agile methodology and coordination change push for over the years now, even though they were working from collaborative workforce in person. But they were they were all set up when they went to work from home remote locations, they didn't skip a beat. Actually, their release cycles went up from one a day or two a day. They are doing multiple pushes like four or five a day. But ops guys, poor guys, they're always used to work from knock and monitoring all these things. They are, they're clueless about what changes are dropping and they, are, they, are, they have war rooms and wild goose chases have gone up more. Well, the first problem there is you have DevOps guys and you have ops guys. So we create these silos. I encountered one the other day. The DevOps guys were waiting for the DevSecOps guys. And I'm like, oh my God, you're doing this wrong. There is no DevOps guys. There is no DevSecOps guys. There's this way of thinking called DevOps. And we just love to be in our silos. And I guess we'll never solve that problem. Well, on that note, now that we define what an AI ops is, most enterprises already have the APM tools, the NPMD right. tools, ITOM tools, ITSM tools, all the ticketing, all of that in place. Why do they need a new tool set now? Can I not using one of the existing ones to kind of force fit and solve this issue? Yeah, well, it's a great question. The reason is simple. Our systems are getting so more distributed, so more complex. You can't just sit there and, and wait for alerts anymore, right? You, you're dealing with IoT-based systems with sensors all over the planet, or you're dealing with cloud applications, you know, especially in the space of big data and analytics, where you go from zero to 500 nodes and then down to zero. The old methods of waiting for your red, yellow, green even if it's proactive, trending towards something bad, just doesn't work anymore. And, and humans don't scale to look at this stuff anymore. Now we need systems to kind of augment that type of stuff and engage us. In some cases, there's too much risk to have the system to actually make the changes, but at least have the system make recommendations that a human can come and look at. But a human can't consume all the data that our highly distributed complex systems are throwing at us today. It's just humanly impossible. 
I grew up in an area where all our server, we had big honking IBM boxes named after Star Wars spaceships, right? Th- those days are over. You, <laughs> you don't name stuff anymore because you didn't even know it existed 10 minutes ago. So right. I think it's the complexity, the highly distributed nature, the fact that these aren't your servers or immutable servers, and you throw in the IoT and the devices and the mobile units, and it's just, you can't hire enough humans to watch this stuff. Is that the only reason of scaling up the humans and ops guys so they have this, or do they really see a lot of value in implementing this? No. There's many reasons. Some of it is just business process optimization, right? I've seen a great number of people moving from the traditional 1-800 help desk to a more RPA type where people reading from a script, well, I can script that. So we can get a more responsive, more customer-centric We have all this data. We can tell if this is a gold platinum type customer and we could have bots or or scripts or something run automatically and streamline this stuff and greatly drive down the cost of running those types of systems and those types of operations. So some of it is makes financially sense. Some of it is what I talked about previously, where it's just, you know, we're at a scale where you can't throw humans at it. Some of it is just better customer service. A more effective customer service and, and some systems, you know, if you think self-driving cars and those types of things need to be entirely autonomous for them to work. So you know, there isn't a place for a human to get into the process. So there's a lot of factors driving this. So, but the existing RPA tools, right? And some of the RPA and automation, IT automation tools, they're already doing part of this work, don't, don't they? When you bring in this new system, how do you make sure that these two work together or are they going to be another set of silos created and nothing talks to each other? <laughs> That's the million-dollar question. That's why all your favorite <laughs> monitoring tools are now called AI ops platforms. So that's the challenge. You have data coming from so many different places. You have so many disparate tools. We can throw RPA in here, but if it's not talking to, you know, this system over here that's putting out trend data, there's no easy answer. The thing is, like anything else, you have to have some kind of idea and strategy of how to go forward. Just buying another tool and sticking it in doesn't really solve the problem. Or like you said, some of these tools already exist, but they exist in isolated use case that's in a data silo from all these other tools. Essentially, what you're saying is that you have to use some sort of intelligence to find out anomalies and and problem identifications, and you have to automate how to fix all of them, and then your insight and knowledge need to feed into that, which means the entire, you're looking for the spectrum to automate everything. But if you do that, wouldn't that land up in lost IT jobs, though? Oh, the old lost IT jobs, right? You know, it really comes down to what functions are you working on and what capabilities you have. So a lot of people with engineering chops spend a lot of time doing repetitive functions. And when that is replaced with technology, then we can leverage their engineering brain in other places. So there's that. Now, in some cases, you know, I, I go back to this place I used to work many years ago. We had tons and tons of people printing out reports and combing through them. And then we created all these analytic systems and those tasks went away. So some tasks will go away, you know, when you're doing low value add manual tasks. But if you're an engineer and a good one and you have 
a skill set in a specific domain, usually those manual tasks take away from the capabilities you can provide the company. And very often when we automate those things, now we can leverage that engineering brain for what they're made for. For example, a lot of people get afraid, oh, we're moving to the cloud. I'm a network engineer. Well, we still need to design great networks in the cloud, just they're not with physical infrastructure. So we need that network engineer to help us do that. Granted, we don't need to stitch together you know, a bunch of routers and stuff. We probably do back on-prem, but in the cloud. But we, we're we not, you know, being an app developer, I'm not a network engineer. I don't plan to be. So leverage those people for their years and years of experience in that area, but they're not really racking and stacking anymore, those types of things. That's an interesting point, though. I had this discussion with the C-level a while ago. We were discussing this very topic, right? In the 70s and 80s, the factory, all this manufacturing floors, when they came out, it's pretty much, you know, in the, in the earlier days, before the smart factory and all that came in, everything was manual process, whether it's uh, taking stuff from conveyor belt and putting it somewhere else or inspecting, moving, materials movement, the whole nine yards. The entire manufacturing supply chain units, they were all manual process. And the industrial automation came in, somewhat was mechanical automation. But then the introducing computers and vision and AI into that was a huge revolution. Yes, it did replace some of the low-level floor jobs, but also added high-value jobs. And that's true not just in that one industry, as you were pointing out, even IT. Any high-value jobs, if there is any, it'll create more high-value jobs and eliminate low-value jobs. That's not just in IT. That's in any industry over the course of time when you automate it or instrument it. Let me give you a a great example. This is an IoT example from before there was a thing called IoT. So right out of college, I got a job in the steel industry working at a steel plant. And they had what's called the hot strip mill is where they pour the molten steel and form into whatever. It could be a bar, it could be a roll of aluminum, whatever. They had sensors all over that thing, right? This is IoT before there was IoT. The challenge was... We would get all the data on tape, VSAM tape, the next day, and then I'd spend a day reading off tape and doing all this analysis and then sending reports, and then people would react to those reports and make necessary changes, but it took 48 hours. That same mentality is here today, except it's real time, right? So there really didn't replace many jobs. As a developer now, I'm just working with a different technology stack. The, the person on the line now is getting that information in real time. It's just the people pushing paper, shuffling stuff in 48 hours. Yeah, that goes away. But we still, we've empowered this decision maker in real time instead of two days later. So it's, it's all still there. What we eliminated was 48 hours of waste and replaced it with a real time decision making. And it created a better business result because if, when I tell the person 48 hours, it's, it's probably too late to make a change. Either that or they've been doing it defectively for 48 hours and a lot of bad things went out until I let them know to make this change. So you put in that context, this stuff has been here forever. What's changed is network bandwidth, the speed of the internet, cheap storage, cheap processing. The technology's become affordable to do these things in real time. That's really an interesting point that uh, you're responding to yesterday's events today, right? 24 or 48 hours later. Imagine if you continue doing that. I mean, now... If you don't respond within a matter of seconds, if, if I pull up an app and if I request something, if it doesn't respond within about a second, if not milliseconds, that app is done for me, right? Yeah. 
The AI and ITOps podcast will be back shortly. I'm Pete Golden, the publisher of APM Digest, and I just want to take a break for a minute to talk to you about New Relic, the sponsor that brought you this podcast today. New Relic has done something a little out there. They reworked everything. See, they've been actually listening when people talk about blind spots or being stuck with a dozen different tools or getting hit with hidden costs. First, they went open source, making it so you can actually instrument what you need. Then they made it so you can monitor your whole stack in one place, including serverless. You can use telemetry data from any source for ridiculously cheap, and there's one UI with all your tools. And they completely changed their pricing so you can easily predict it. This is advantageous because who has time to troubleshoot their bill? Best of all, there's a free tier with one user and 100 gigabytes per month, totally free. So you can really make sure it works before you pay a dime. New Relic is definitely worth another look. Check it out at newrelic.com. Observability made simple. And now back to the podcast. So on that note about high-value, low-value jobs, particularly about cloud ops concept and the AI ops and the whole nine yards, are they land up creating new set of roles or, or are the enterprises just repurposing some of the existing roles? If they were to repurpose, do they have enough skill set to repurpose or how, how are they coping with that? Those are all good questions. I'm going to tie this into DevOps, right? And my definition of DevOps is not CICD, right? It's not automated pipelines. It is how do I take a requirement and get that into production and keep it running better, faster, more reliable, right? And all the people process technology in that. The teams that are embracing those DevOps concepts are moving more towards full stack teams or you build it, you run it type teams where you have all the right skill sets wrapped around a product, right? So if I have a product, say I'm building some web services that people are consuming, yeah, I'm going to change skill sets and I may, that's kind of where SRE started growing up and, and other things, but you know, I may have people just focused on nothing but re- reliability, right? Now the companies that stay in their silos, they're repurposing, right? The the operators now working on AIOps operations, they don't change a lot of process. They add more tools. So it's it's a mixed bag. If, if you're moving to the future towards that DevOps model where we become more product focused, we build more full stack teams around a product and service. We have shared goals towards that service. You're, you're seeing a lot of reskilling. Where they're not, we're just, you know, adding the tool to already 50 tools and kind of going down the same route. You brought up that concept, DevOps, and a couple of times you mentioned that. Let me ask you something on that. So there was this VP of IT operations who was in parallel to the dev organization. In their organization, the DevOps guys were predominantly developer guys, so most of them from there and some of the ops guys were augmenting the staff. So he was telling me with the frequency of releases going up because of the work-from-home concept, this is quote-unquote. I won't name who it is, but he said the DevOps and the release guys and the development guys have messed it up for the ops guys. We are already struggling with uh, to cope up with the fact that we are not at our knock centers. We don't have the bells and whistles. We don't have the dashboards monitors. We don't have all the tools available to us. We are barely surviving, keeping our heads above the water, and these guys are messing it up for us. What's your opinion on that, and how can they really coexist and help each other out? Well, that's not DevOps. 
right? That's there's an op silo, there's a silo of developers we call DevOps, and that's not DevOps, right? That's a bunch of people getting really smart about how to automate a bunch of process, how to automate the CI/CD process. I do a lot of work today in areas of operating model and value stream mapping, and then. I'm actually writing a book called Accelerating Cloud Adoption. It's basically saying there's technology, but the real blockers for cloud adoption, and here you could say AI ops adoption or whatever adoption, is you're bringing the organizational structures that were designed for an era where we deployed twice a year big monoliths and mainframes to a model where we want to push button deploy multiple times a week or a day. And what happens is we create these DevOps teams who remove the bottlenecks in their control, which is the build and deployment process. They don't even address the operations component, which happens to be, in this case, in many cases, a separate silo with separate goals and objectives that don't match with their goals and objectives. And that's the problem with this stuff. We solve local problems and create new bottlenecks. The bottleneck is an organizational problem of not having shared incentives, of having silos that require multiple handoffs. I have a slide that has all these islands, right? And each island is a domain. You know, there's security, there's governance, there's change control, there's all these things. And each island has barbed wire process around it, right? And each silo has its own goals and objectives and the process around it helps them meet those goals and objectives, right? What's the intake process for requests? What's the outtake process of processing that request? And that's what their processes are. There's like a dozen of these islands. And then to the right, there's a developer saying, can I push the button now? And there's like 12 no's, right? And, and it's no one's doing anything malicious. It's just, we need to follow, you need to fill this ticket. You need to write this form. We need to have this review process because the security group's responsible for security. Compliance group's responsible for compliance, you know. QA is responsible for testing. So everyone has to go through this process to make sure they held their bargain on it. As opposed to building those full stack teams that have where everyone owns security, everyone owns compliance, everyone owns quality, and then collaborating through the process and getting rid of processes that were built for another time. And it's easy to say, but it's hard to do because what's happening to my job or the VP doesn't want to give up his kingdom, his or her kingdom. I don't, you know, I have 30 people. I'm not moving eight people over here. There's all this stuff that goes on. And that's the problem. I, I hear this all the time. Well, the DevOps team, I'm like, you're done. You already fell. It's not the DevOps team, right? There should be a product team that has full stack capabilities, whether they're directly on that team or dotted line, it doesn't really matter. It's just, I'm building a product. I need to have all these skill sets. They shouldn't be in another silo with another top 10 priority list that has nothing to do with mine because then work can't get done. There is this new concept of cloud ops that help you smoothen this process. Again, another silo. Is that part of the problem or part of the solution? Depends on how it's implemented. So I've been working on in that area for years. I despised the term when it first came out, but I don't so much anymore because I don't think of it as a silo anymore. But I think of cloud ops as the new way of operating cloud-based software. I used to think of it as here's a team of operators that are now managing cloud. If you implement it that way, yeah, it's just another silo. But if you look at it and say, this is how we used to do stuff with physical machines and a physical data center with physical networks. This is how we do stuff today with immutable infrastructure on a third-party cloud provider's platform, leveraging function, Lambda functions or managed services, BigQuery and stuff like that. It's a totally different operating model. 
And so I like to think cloud ops in that sense of how do we operate modern cloud systems. And when we think that way and we don't bring tools that were made to live in a physical data center and try to use that same tool in the cloud, when we start thinking that way and building that way, I think it becomes pretty progressive. When we think of it as here's the cloud ops team, the five people who used to run the Apache web server are now running AWS and Azure workloads. When we think of it that way, then usually you get the same result. You get an expensive data center in the cloud because we design it the same way we designed everything in the data center. The whole AI movement. Is it more about AI and intelligence associated with that? Or is it more of a data? You need to have enough good quality data that you can drive insights from? Or is it more about automation that, you know, you got to get insights, you got to get intelligence, and you got to implement automation? Or all of them carry one-third weight each? Well, they're all important. I don't know which one is more weight than the other. Obviously, if you have bad data, nothing else matters. So maybe there's a little more weight there. But yeah, it takes all three of those to generate any kind of successful outcome. So this is more like it can come only from your personal experience, given that you deal with all this big enterprises trying to do this. Is there one thing that the successful enterprise is doing it right that the other guys are not? Is there a value learned? You don't have to name the customers, but what is it they're doing that's different than the failed guys? Well, the ones that aren't, I won't call them fail. I mean, there's some failures. There's others that are making progress. But when it's like, okay, here's AI ops. Let's go find a problem to solve. That usually doesn't work well, right? That becomes a tool exercise. But when there's a team working on a whether it's a platform or a service or a product, and they're continuously learning. If your system's in chaos mode, it's kind of like when you embrace chaos engineering, right? If your system's already in chaos, don't go to chaos engineering, right? It's a maturity thing. So these teams that have a fairly good track record for building good systems and they've been on the system for a while and they have a high level of maturity, a lot of times their new bottleneck or their new reliability problems are things that can only be solved with more automation, more intelligence. The success is when they go to AI ops out of need, meaning I've done all I can do manually and proactively with the system. The problem's gone beyond that scope and now I need assisted operations or augmented operations or autonomous operations. That's where you see success. Where you don't see success is all right, here's the new shiny platform I've bought. You know, who needs this? Let's go solve your problems. That, that just doesn't work. And that's true with every technology. The other point there is there may only be one application or one service that even requires the investment in this type of stuff. It's not binary, zero and one. We bought AI ops, now everyone needs to use it. If I have a, a web page, refresh it once a day, and it's not millions of people hitting it, I don't need to take it to this level. But if I'm doing stuff, say, in, in healthcare and an hour of downtime could destroy lives, I may make these investments and see how I can really improve the overall reliability of the system. So if someone is starting out new, that they haven't thought about it, haven't implemented, haven't started the, the new initiative, is there one specific advice that you want to give? Oh, it could be something like, Choose the right tool, get the right people, change the culture, or if you waited this long, you're out of your mind. What, <laughs> what do you want to tell them? So tools never going to solve your problem. The way I learn before I get my hands on something is from listening to practitioners. There's value in listening to vendors at 
the 50,000 foot, but that only takes you so far. They're actually trying to sell you something. So the vendors themselves have a lot of good content, but when you want to get to practical use of things, you have to go out and find where the practitioners are. Now, one of the kind of, I'll say, good things of everyone working from remote is there's a lot of these practitioner I won't even call meetups, but presentations popping up all over the place. In the DevOps space, there was all day DevOps. There was SRE con. It's no vendor BS. It's just people saying, a lot of times, this doesn't work. And this is what worked for us, but we're still learning. And, and go listen to those people. You'll, you can find them on YouTube and stuff. But don't. back in the SOA days, we used to joke about VDA, vendor-driven architecture, right? Stay away from that. Like I say, the vendors do have some good content, but keep in mind everything works great when you read their stuff and everything works flawlessly and only their tool can do it. But really go look at practitioners, go, uh, especially within your industry, if you're lucky enough to find some and see where people solve those problems. And then one great thing about cloud providers, is they provide a pretty cost-effective I'll call a sandbox to experiment, right? You can go spin up stuff on micros on free tiers and you can go play around with stuff. Yeah, I love the VDA vendor-driven architecture concept. You start designing something, finally you'll end up designing what the vendor is proposing as opposed to what you really want. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, man. This has been really useful. Thanks so much, Mike, for agreeing to be on our podcast and for that enlightening conversation. Well, thank you for having me. I love talking about this stuff. You know, technology is hard, but people are a lot harder, right? So technology can take you so far. You have to really rethink how work gets done if you're applying this stuff towards modern architectures because they're done differently. We have to kind of let go of the past and think about ways to do things optimized for future state architecture. So you heard from Mike. You agree? Disagree? Or if you have an opinion, let me know. Let's discuss this further. Also, if you'd like to be part of our podcast, let me know as well. Until next episode, so long and stay safe.